Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 169 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is quite possibly the greatest comedy actress in the history of television. A record 18-time Emmy nominee, not to mention a seven-time winner, for comedy performances spread between NBC's Seinfeld, CBS's The New Adventures of Old Christine, and HBO's Veep, the great Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Louis Dreyfus, who is 56, was plucked out of Northwestern University 35 years ago by NBC's Saturday Night Live, on which she appeared from 1982 through 1985. She was back on the Peacock Network just four years later when Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David were instructed by Suits to add a female cast member to their new show, The Seinfeld Chronicles, which, of course, became the iconic comedy series Seinfeld, and on which Louis Dreyfus played Jerry's ex-girlfriend and best friend, Elaine Bennis, who, groundbreakingly, was just one of the guys. Louis Dreyfus followed her nine seasons on Seinfeld, spanning 1989 through 1998, with two highly regarded but relatively short-lived sitcoms, NBC's Watching Ellie, which aired from 2002 through 2003, and the aforementioned The New Adventures of Old Christine, which ran from 2006 through 2010. Just as some were starting to throw around the notion that she had fallen victim to a much-discussed Seinfeld curse, she reemerged in 2012 on Veep as hilarious Selena Meyer, an ambitious, bumbling, foul-mouthed politician, fixated on the Oval Office. We now have seen six seasons of Veep, each of which has brought Louis Dreyfus Emmy noms for Best Comedy Series as one of the show's producers and Best Actress in a Comedy Series as its star. The show has won Best Comedy Series the last two years in a row and could three-peat on September 17th. She, meanwhile, has won Best Actress in a Comedy Series for all five seasons that have been eligible up to this point, establishing her as the record holder for most consecutive acting wins at five and most total wins in the Best Actress in a Comedy Series category at six. Should she win again on September 17th, she would tie Cloris Leachman's all-time record for most acting wins by a female or male performer at eight. She already has won a SAG Award and been nominated for Golden Globe and Critics' Choice Awards this season. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Louis Dreyfus and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, why her experience at SNL, including one year when she overlapped with a then-struggling young writer named Larry David, was horrible at the time but has proven beneficial in the long run, what made Elaine Bennis and Seinfeld so revolutionary, not least a total lack of emphasis on likability, 
and how that helped to change expectations for other women on and off TV, not least Selena Meyer, why Louis Dreyfus may be uniquely equipped to play Meyer on Veep, and how her background in improvisation, her scenes with co-star Tony Hale, and the show's showrunners, Armando Iannucci until 2015 and David Mandel ever since, all have contributed to her performance and the show, how Veep and the way people consume it changed on November 8, 2016, when a politician at least as inept as Selena Meyer was elected president in real life, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you very much for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. We always begin just with the basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in New York City, Mm -hmm. New York. My parents were divorced when I was very young. And so I was live with my mother and then my stepfather when they got married when I was four. My father lived in New York and was in the commodities business. Mm -hmm. He was a lawyer and then he was in the commodities business. And my stepfather was a doctor. And eventually we moved to Washington, D.C., where he became, worked at George Washington Medical School as the dean of the medical school and then the president of the hospital and and so on. I thought it was interesting to, when I, prepping for this, I I read that you had been in D.C. for an early part of your life. And I guess we'll come back to how that might have informed anything else that's come more recently. But what kind of a kid were you? Were you, I guess people would assume you were the class clown, but is that correct? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I sometimes fell into that mm-hmm. role, but not always. Mm-hmm. I think I was a pretty sensitive kid. I was a kid who loved to fantasize a lot, and I always wanted to be an actor. And I was putting on plays with my friends and my neighbors at a very young age for our parents. Mm-hmm. And this was always a sort of a desire for me. Yeah. Yeah. And were you very exposed to movies, TV, theater, whatever, you know, were there any productions or people that were important to you before you decided this was what you wanted to do? I don't know the before, because I feel as if I've always wanted to do it. But there were particular movies like The Sound of Music Mm -hmm. and Mary Poppins and Funny Girl that just sent me. And this was, you know, back before even videotape. So you just, I mean, I must have seen sound, both Sound of Music and Mary Poppins easily... 10 times each. <laughs> and then I watched, you know, all those. Well, Lucy was in reruns at that point, but, you know, there were a lot of TV shows, Dick Van Dyke and stuff that were very informative to me. So when you went off to Northwestern, was it your intention to leave there an actress or were people in your life saying to you, you know, do something more practical, as is often the case? No, I, I had support from my family all the way around. And so my intention was to be an actress, Mm -hmm. yes. And what was it that happened there so that you were not only involved with the in-school drama program, but also with a bunch of things outside of it? Maybe you can share what some of those were. Well, yes, I I met my freshman year, as a matter of fact, there was sort of a, what do they call it, a watershed moment or whatever. For me, I got cast in a show at Northwestern at the time. It was was called, actually, they still have it. It's called The Meow Show. But the culture of the school at the time was that, you know, to put it bluntly, The Meow Show was sort of the cool improv show that made fun of everybody. The WAMU Show, which is another show on campus, was much more sort of straightforward and, I don't know, it's CBS versus HBO. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. (laughs) 
exactly. Yeah. <laughs> to give you an idea of, yeah. you know, and by the way, I don't mean to knock WAMU because it's really cool. <laughs> and a lot of people came out of WAMU and made very, and, you know, and CBS is cool too, right. by the way, but I mean, and made very <laughs> interesting works and lots of very talented people have been in right. WAMU. But at any rate, my point is, is that this show was revered, the Meow show. Yeah. And, as a freshman to get in that show was a really big deal and I met incredible people doing that show and I learned really how to do improv comedy which I actually already had been doing without sort of knowing it probably where had you been doing it well just in high school you know we do sketches and things and you know at morning assembly to try to make people laugh and looking back on it I think oh yeah that was really yeah that was improvisation but it was sort of born out of trying to be funny and playful but now it really had a name to it and through those people at school, I met other people. And, and one of the guys at the Meow Show, his name was Paul Barras, and he was partnered with a guy named Brad Hall. And they were starting a theater company called the Practical Theater Company. And that is how my life outside of Northwestern began, because I did shows with Practical Theater Company. And Brad Hall then became your boyfriend, and then eventually your Then he became husband. my husband, yes. yeah. But throughout... But he's still my boyfriend. Yes, so you're- So with the Practical Theater Company and him, I guess there was a particularly big one junior year? Yes. We were doing a show called the Practical Theater Company's Golden 50th Anniversary Jubilee, which was ironic because the the company had only been in existence three years. (laughs) And it was a very big hit in Chicago, and we were doing it in a space right next door to Second City which then became the ETC space. Anyway, it was a big monster hit. And unbeknownst to us one night, the producers of Saturday Night Live were in the audience. And so after the show, they came backstage and they offered us all jobs. Now, was that totally out of the blue, though? Because, I mean, I guess Second City, they have historically have scouted people out of there. And I think you had even done some stuff with Second City, too, Yes, I worked with Second City, too. Yeah, I got a a job in the touring company there, too. I was really busy outside of campus. Yeah, I was going to say, unbelievable. But the idea that they would now be scouting practical theater company people, was that any precedent for that? Not that I knew of. Yeah. Yeah. So you finished your show. I'm telling you, this was like one of those moments in in a movie. Yeah. That seems like. You're going to Hollywood, kid. So that night's performance or whatever, you you wrap up, you go backstage and somebody, did you even know they were out there when you were doing it? No, thank God. Because <laughs> that would, yeah, that would be I'm tough. I'm sure it would have thrown me. And at that point, who are we talking about? Is this Dick Ebersol or who was? Yeah, it was Dick Ebersol and Bob Tischler. And I think actually, if memory serves, I think Tim Kazarinski was there too that night, but I could be wrong about that. And this was all just the reason it would have been Dick Ebersol as opposed to Lauren Michaels is this is right during that whatever three or four years or whatever it was that Lauren stepped away from the yes, show. Yes, the fallow period. Yes. <laughs> the Gene Dumanian era. Yes. First it was Gene and yes, then Dick yes. came in. Yeah. So let me ask you this. When they offer you this, was there any hesitation about the, you know, you were going to have to leave school, you were going to have to do that? Or None just, whatsoever. Because they were already huge. No, I was like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, the great news, they offered your boyfriend as well. Yes, exactly. So me and the guy go, as well as Paul Barras and Gary Kroger, we all took off. But to uh, help put this into context, too, when SNL first started, and I don't know what year that was, but I want to say it was 75, right. So I was in eighth grade, maybe. Right. So you can imagine that I was its audience, Mm -hmm. and it was the most incredible show on television at that time. Mm -hmm. There was nothing that spoke to our generation like that show did, and it was so irreverent. It was like a dream come true. Wow. So when you got there, you were the youngest female cast member in the show's history up to that point. 
you're joining a cast at that point with Eddie Murphy, Martin Short, Christopher Guest, Billy Crystal, Joe Piscopo, among others. But from what I've read, including in that very thorough SNL oral history, it was pretty awkward and unpleasant, it seems like, from the start. Yes. Literally, where I guess they ask you to do your act for the writers. Oh. Was it was just hor- horrendous? It was an agony. That just seems like such a weird thing to make people do. Well, I mean, I guess I understand what their intention was, but it didn't translate. So we did one of the sketches from this show in Chicago that had been this huge hit to crickets. <laughs> And these are hardened, uh, these are hardened yeah. writers and actors who've had it. Right. And by the way, some of the people on the show, you know, we're coming in as newbies, completely green and naive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certain people had been let go right beforehand. And so we're sort of replacing them. And it was a disaster from start to finish. And just a couple other things. And please correct me if any of these are wrong, but just sure. reading what created this climate where it was unpleasant for most of these three years, I guess three or three plus eighty two to eighty five that you were there, Dick Ebersol had some kind of thing where he always wanted your hair straight. Yeah, he did. Okay, minor by comparison to all the. So other some of the other well, the, yeah. an increasing important. Next, there's sounds like you had not necessarily been a part of the drug scene in Northwestern. Here, it's all around well, I you. Spoke, I definitely smoked my share of pot and yeah. stuff, but I was not doing gobs of coke and <laughs> and God only knows what else. What else, right? Yeah. So now that's all around you. And then it seems like the big problem, which a lot of, this is every SNL female alum from that period would, that seems to agree, was that it's just not a great environment to be a, a, a woman in. No, it was not. It was a pretty misogynistic culture. And, you know, ultimately I would say there was not good leadership. There was nobody with a nose for what's really funny calling the shots. So was all of this, along with the fact that it sounds like it was hard to get, just get opportunities to even go on the air, it must have been disappointing having held SNL on such a it pedestal. It was crushing. Yeah. It, was a cr- it was a crushing time. I should also say that I, it was crushing, but also I, I didn't have the skill set. I was sort of learning as I, I mean, it was like being through, I'm not a firefighter, for instance. So if somebody put a suit on me and told me to go out there, I'd, I guess maybe I'd learn by yeah. watching other people, but I wouldn't be very good at it. <laughs> and it sort of felt like that. Yeah. And I certainly wasn't a writer back then. I think I have better writing skills now, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't back then. Although I had a good sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't know how to take care of myself. I didn't even understand that you needed to come up with characters necessarily, you know, in the way that you really needed to. So how did it end? I left after three years because everything changed. I think Dick left after three years, or maybe he didn't. I can't remember. But I wasn't asked back, and he left. And I think Lauren came in at that time. So did you overlap with him at all? With Lauren? Yeah. No, I'd never met him. Yeah. Yeah. So even though it wasn't a most positive thing, most positive experience, were there things that just from osmosis or whatever you took away from from those three years? Yes, for sure. Well, I learned everything I just told you. I mean, I learned to develop a certain skill set. And I got tougher. And I learned how to do live television, which is not a small thing. And I also learned what I didn't want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I really did recognize that even though I was young and still in college and doing theater outside of Northwestern, I recognized the key to 
success as I wanted to have it, which was to really enjoy the process. And in so doing something, usually good came out of it. Yeah. So I sort of applied that moving forward. Was your outlook, though, coming out of it that you were worried that you might not get another big shot like that? Or were you pretty confident that you would rebound in a good way? No, I wasn't confident at all. (laughs) I mean, I came out of that pretty bruised. Yeah. I sort of had made sort of interior decisions to a certain extent. But I I will admit to you that I thought, okay, well, if I can't really do this and find a happy way to do it, I'm not going to bother with it. What would you have done? I don't know. I don't have any other skills. We'd probably go back to finish school, right? I guess. Yeah, yeah. To do what? I mean, you know, study, (laughs) you know, science. Right. (laughs) You know, and then I was trying to find work, you know. I was trying to find work in New York the next year. I stayed in New York and got virtually nothing. Well, it seems like that was roughly when you had this small part in Hannah and Her Sisters for Woody. Oh, yeah. That's right. I did. But did that, I mean, I guess on one level that's exciting. On the other hand, that's not going to pay your bills. Right. And it wasn't like a breakout role. It was like, essentially, it was, I mean, I think I had one line. Yeah. What then went into the decision to try life in L.A. as opposed to New York? There was more work in L.A. And they were making TV in L.A. Mm -hmm. And so I came out to Los Angeles for pilot season. And did that first pilot season? Yeah, I got a job. You did? Yeah, I got a pilot. It was a spinoff of Family Ties. And it was called The Art of Being Nick. And it did not get picked up. But I had a really funny role in it. And I think NBC noticed that. I guess it it wouldn't have been that long after that that you are out here and you get, I guess you get a call or something from another formerly disgruntled SNL alum who you had overlapped with, I guess, in your final year there, Larry yes, David? Yes, Larry David and I were both at SNL my third year, his first and only year. He had really been un- unhappy He as had well. been miserable. <laughs> the two of us were utterly miserable. And what was his, I mean, so you'd seen him at work on that show. Was his problem just he wasn't getting opportunities or what yeah, was? Yeah, they weren't paying any, they didn't recognize his material as being anything. This is a fine example of the leadership. Yes, that they um, couldn't see what they had. Yeah. And his stuff was off the beaten path for sure. Right. But he was not getting any airtime. And by the way, he would write for me. <laughs> on the show? So sure. You were both, you were both. We both miserable together. <laughs> I'm fairly certain I, I sat in his office and cried a lot. Oh, my gosh. Well. Yeah. So it's 1989 when he sends you what at that time I guess is called the Seinfeld Chronicles. But isn't it the case that that had already been a pilot that was picked up? It's not like – so you were not joining for the pilot. You were joining as a corrective to the pilot, right? Correct. What was, what was the issue? They wanted a girl. They wanted a girl character, and they it was a four episode order, so it wasn't it was hardly a seal of approval from That's the so network. Weird. Four yeah, episodes. four episodes. You know why? I think it came through late night programming, mm-hmm. and I think they were trying to sort of burn off a commitment or something. I don't know. Jerry could probably answer that better, but there wasn't great confidence in this notion. So you go in. I guess it was because Larry could vouch for you as a comedic talent? Well, Larry vouched for me, but also NBC at this point. I mean, they still sort of inexplicably, there was some affection for me post-SNL, don't ask me why. (laughs) Oh, pardon me. And then I had done a series called Day by Day. So I did this, this pilot, and then I did another series for two years, actually, called Day by Day, also NBC. And you were the lead. Well, I was a supporting character that came in and, you know, made snarky jokes yeah. and exited. <laughs> so with all of that background, I didn't have to get what they call, 
don't know if they still do this, but network tested. Right, I'm right. sure they do, actually. Um, Why wouldn't probably. they still do that? So <laughs> I was already sort of approved by the network. So it was just a question of, and then Larry really wanted me to do it. And so I came and I met with him and Jer. And, and what's interesting is that you know, Jerry was just like, the, I mean, I didn't really know Jerry at all. I mm-hmm. sort of sort of maybe recognized him, but not really. And I wasn't in the comedy world. Yep. But there was definitely this feeling like there was no the man around, like we were going to do this show. Right. And it was kind of, again, very unusual tone for sitcom at that time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't set up, set up joke, set up, set up joke. There's an actual rhythm to those right, shows, right. which, by the way, I don't want to knock because plenty of shows have been sublimely wonderful with that rhythm. But in this case, it was a different, completely different tone. And and the show was so unusual because it the setup for the show was so small. Yeah. And non-formulaic in any way, in Correct. the sense that yeah. Normally, you're supposed to like the characters, right? Yes. <laughs> Which didn't seem to matter to. It didn't seem Jerry at certainly. All. No, I I think likability. I mean, I certainly believe it's underrated, and and I think that Larry David. Well, actually, looking back on it, I think we've both made a, a pretty solid career yes. out of unlikability. <laughs> so what's what's <laughs> also a lot of people forget, and we had a kind of funny banter about this one. Jerry did do this podcast when he was doing Comedians in Cars about a year ago. and Which is a great show, by the it way. It is. It is. And the thing that came up, though, which I, I guess I was reminded, is that for the first few years, nobody really cared about Seinfeld. Mm-mm. And I guess the, the, he said the weirdest thing was, I don't remember, were you guys originally Wednesday night or some, what, whatever Something. the first night? He goes, that night, they didn't like us. Thursday night, they love us. And that's really as simple as the, the change was that turned it around, right? I think so. I, and and we kept getting wasn't it Jake and the Fat Man or something kept beating us? Oh Jesus, is that right? Yeah. So obviously, eventually, people got on board and and I yeah, think- and I think we had a strong demo. I don't know that demos were important back then, like they are maybe now or if they are now anymore. It's hard to tell. <laughs> the, it's the Wild West, right. and, and I'm not paying any attention to that stuff right. anymore. But you know, I think our demo was kind of solid. The show also, though, I think people began to appreciate how groundbreaking it was for the reasons that we talked about with likability aspect. But also, I wonder if you realized in the doing of all of this how revolutionary in a way Elaine was, because not only the idea that she's with the guys and just can be just as unlikable as the guys, but she has her own sexual appetite. She has all these other things that I don't know how many precedents there were for this on on television. So there weren't any. I didn't think so. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there were. Has your recognition of that only come looking back at it? Or in the moment, did you realize this was... In the moment, I knew it. So what did you like most about her? Her balls. Yeah? Yeah. I like to play a girl who was unapologetically in your face. Yeah? Yeah. (laughs) How much was that like you were at the time? Maybe a little bit. Yeah? yeah. I mean, I'm not like Elaine. I'm not like that character because she's kind of foul and self-centered. I don't... But I think there's an aspect of me in that, sure. So in the in the immediate aftermath of Seinfeld, which, you know, obviously a lot of people paid attention when that came to an end, people for a few years there were asking you guys constantly about this quote-unquote Seinfeld curse, which obviously you and Larry and Jerry and plenty of folks have blown to smithereens. But I wonder in, in the immediate aftermath, even when you were, were trying, I guess your first show after that was yeah, Watching Ellie, yeah. 2002 to 2003, did it feel like in some way you were having to swim upstream? Because, I mean, it just seems like 
there are very few instances in TV history where somebody becomes beloved and famous as one character and is able to reinvent themselves as another character who's comparably beloved. And there really haven't been that many examples. Yeah, I guess. Did you feel like that was an obstacle for you in those first years after? I didn't really think of it in it. I didn't come at it like that. I came at it like I want to keep working. I'm young. I need more jobs. I like I need them fundamentally in my core. need them. Mm-hmm. I, I did have a feeling like I have to show people I can do things beyond this. And because I want to do things, but you know, I didn't want to keep playing this character for the rest of my life. And I knew in my heart of hearts that I was capable of that. And was the first one that went as you would have liked, maybe not even necessarily. Ellie? Well, no, no, no. Well, I mean, sounds like that would have you would have liked that to last longer than. Yeah, well, I, yes. But what's interesting about that is that I have I have great pride about that show because I think it was sort of ahead of its time. No laugh track, right? No laugh track, single camera in real time. It was pretty ballsy to take that on. And also, by the way, we yes. negotiated to have lesser episodes. And I think it was well written. It was very funny. It had an stellar cast. And Maybe it, it would just... have worked more on a HBO type place. Yeah, or I think it might have worked about 10 years later. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, but the one that clicked with others as much as it clicked with you after Seinfeld, the first one would have been New Adventures of Old, Old Christine. Christine. Yes. 2006 to 2010 on CBS. So you're back on broadcast. This one yeah. critics liked a lot. Emmy voters liked a lot again. Yeah. But at, ultimately the issue there was who was the show made for? Who would you say the target audience was? I don't know. I don't think of it like that. like that. I mean, I don't, I guess people with a good taste. <laughs> Does that count for anything? I, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> it doesn't seem like it anymore, but uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. We just were trying to make the best show we could. Right. Not, we're not trying to aim it at a, at a particular, but it was very female-centric. Right. And the show creator and showrunner was a wonderful woman named Carrie Lizer, who was just incredibly talented. So it was very female-centric, and Wanda Sykes was in it too, and- It was definitely a departure for me, but at the same time, it was also very standard sitcom. But it was very funny. And it was maybe out of place on CBS, which is very male-centric. At least it was at that time in terms of their programming. Although they'd kill for the numbers that we got <laughs> right now. They would right. kill. And by the way, I don't know what those numbers are, but I can confidently tell you yes. that they would kill Time, for them. Times have changed. <laughs> so pre-Veep, were you ever contemplating even going outside of the large audience that you were looking at, thinking about cable or streaming? Yes. Oh, a hundred percent. I guess the benefit is that at that time in particular, most people were, you know, you, the, the lure of the size of the audience was the main reason why people would not have done that at that time. Or what were the considerations? Like with something like New Adventures of Old Christine, I guess it goes on in 2006, pre anyone thinking really about streaming, but was there ever a conversation about doing that for a cable network? No, that conversation didn't come up. At that time, I mean, we made 87 episodes and we got canceled by CBS after that, which was a really douchey move on yeah, their part. It was douchey because you felt that you guys had performed. I think we performed. should have gotten a little more support yeah. than that. Yeah. And I think we should have been able to get to 100 episodes. So you know? was that the end of broadcast for you, the way that was handled? I don't know. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. but For me, all these decisions are materially driven, mm-hmm. you know. I will say that I knew from hearsay and from talking to friends, that HBO had a different culture about creativity and about letting people do their thing, which was very appealing to me. 
just in hearing about it. I didn't know that that was the case, but just in hearing about it. I also would imagine that the the freedom that comes with not being on broadcast where you can say or, or do whatever you want, show whatever you want, might have been appealing. Yes, but what was really appealing was to the idea of, you know, let us do this. Yeah. Give us the steering wheel. If you want us to drive the car, we'll drive this car. Right. You know, right. but if you would rather drive it yourself, then let me know that <laughs> so I can get another car. <laughs> so, all right. So that brings us nicely up to Veep. What was the first thing to cross your radar that had anything to do with this? My agent, Mike Rosenfeld okay. at CAA, calls me. He says they're developing a show on HBO about a female unhappy vice president. And I said, I've got to get in on that immediately. And this is just probably in terms of when the, when that is happening, less than like a year after Christina being canceled. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't like I was like panting to get back up on the horse again. I was a little bit bruised by, by sure. that experience. And any actor will tell you this. When you work on a series or a movie, but I'm now I'm talking series, yeah. there's so much time and so much emotional and psychic energy that you put into it. You know, even though it, it comes out to be a half an hour, that represents just a shit ton of work <laughs> and passion. And so when that ends, under the best of circumstances, be it Seinfeld or getting canceled or whatever the scene is, mm-hmm. it's a little bit heartbreaking. I'm sure. Because you really put yourself into it, hopefully. Yeah. But anyway, my point is that th- this idea was so intriguing and stimulating to me. I thought, okay, well, I got to get in on this. And so Armando Inucci was the creator of this great idea. And I was familiar with this movie he had made, In the Loop. Yes. I didn't know his series, The Thick of It. Yeah. I subsequently watched it. So we met, and we got along really well, really well. And it was always clear from the time you met with him that it was at HBO. It was oh, not yes. like, it, okay, so there's no Oh, no, like, he had sold this, I, to this idea to HBO. We didn't have a script yet, but he had sold the okay. idea. Yeah. What is it about this character that makes you so equipped to play her? And I just, like, set aside any humility, all humility, all that – I mean, why is set aside humility? Give me a break. This is being recorded. (laughs) You're not my psychiatrist. No, but I mean, like, honestly, (laughs) why? I don't think anyone else could have done this. And people say that about other parts. But like, is it some something that comes with you as the actress who we have this history with that makes it work as well as it does? What is it about you and this part? I'm not sure I can actually really answer that question. I can just tell you what I identified with. Yes. The parallels between. Washington, D.C. and Inside the Beltway and Hollywood are very, very wide, thick, deep parallels. So the notion that you have to sort of keep yourself alive and relevant and fresh and in people's faces in order to sort of stay alive career-wise, well, that notion really applies in both scenario, mm-hmm. in both worlds. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you're selling a brand of yourself Mm -hmm. in both scenarios. I like the idea of, I thought comedically, I like the idea of somebody being number two. There is so much funny stuff with that. There's so much, you know, just making it, but not quite. Failure is absolutely our friend. It always has been my friend comedically. But in this case, I love everything that trickles out from that. And I also love the idea of somebody, of playing someone who is incredibly driven but her own worst enemy and will not, <laughs> will not own up 
to her own failings and blames everybody around her. To me, that's hilarious. Yeah. I I like that conceit very much. And then, of course, being a woman, well, please. I mean, you know, as a woman in show business, in politics, it's brutal out there. I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but it's a different playing field. And so let's play on it and show it as <laughs> show such. It is, yeah. yeah. And I also enjoyed a quote. Somebody had done a profile of you where you said, quote, there is an authority to this character that I feel I have because I've been doing this a long time. Yes. There's also an insecurity underneath that authority. And that's something I'm very comfortable with as well. Yeah. Both of those things. Are, I mean, I think the fact that I've been hanging around this town for a long time and working I can shove all of that experience and wisdom into this part, but it also, I can also tap into my self loathing and <laughs> shame and insecurity and paranoia. And just it all comes sort of bubbling up all at the same time. I, I also think that from a developmental point of view, this character is sort of like a toddler. And so that's kind of fun to tap into in fact she's had tantrums yeah. and throws things down and tell other people to pick them up i mean i just love the idea of uh playing somebody who is utterly out of control coming back to likability and seinfeld and and all of that where that was not something that was emphasized as important on that show we we've seen you be unlikable before and i'd still people love you so i wonder if do you do you think that in terms of selena Let's say there's an actress out there who is just as talented. Not that I don't know if they exist, but if there was, what? Uh, yes, <laughs> if there was, but people didn't have a past with her in the way they do with you, could that be played just as effectively, or is it a, something to do with the fact that we already know and like you as a as a viewer? actress relationship? We already have the, you. You in, in some ways get a longer leash. She can behave like an animal. And we're not going to hate her because we know that it's you playing her. Is there anything to that? Maybe. I hope not, though. I hope that maybe I'm that there's some vulnerability that I hope not, because that's sort of a cheat. If that's the case, I'm hoping I'm able to play it with a kind of vulnerability so that you're happy to see her fail. And at the same time, or it's satisfying to see her fail. But at the same time, when she has the few victories that she does have, you can kind of revel in that moment with her. Only if it's because you know around the corner disaster looms. <laughs> so I, I'm hoping it's more that. Okay. Can you share how the show balances very well written scripted material? Because you guys have great writers, even as they've changed, they've always been great. With rehearsal, which it sounds like there was a lot of before you started the show, but maybe not a ton afterwards. With improv, which we know you have a long history with, but just how how do you balance that when like i would think as if somebody's a great writer they often do not want their stuff changed through improv but you guys have obviously found a balance here how does that all work let's see it began armando's process is very much born out of improvisation there is a script but very often there's improv and then scripts are written and then more improv and then more scripts are written and it's all sort of folded into a stew and it's a great process and so the people that came on board, and I mean the actors that came on board, were adept at this. It's, by the way, it it's, can also be a very terrifying process, particularly in this case because the tone of the show is not necessarily going for the joke joke. 
it's more about these small minutia moments. So it may not get a laugh in the moment, but if it's shot just the right way, it would. Do you understand what I mean? This is what I think you've called grout humor. What does that mean? Yeah, it's in between the tiles. It's what happens between the lines or between what seems to be the joke on the page. Mm -hmm. It's that human behavior stuff. And everybody in this cast is very skilled at finding that grout humor. Mm -hmm. And then as time sort of evolved working with Armando and uh, the rest of our wonderful UK writers, you know, there was sort of, it's like, it's this organic thing that kept moving, but, you know, you get more familiar with your writers, they get more familiar with you, and then, you know, there was always rehearsal, but maybe slightly less, because you get a sense of things, and then when Dave came in, Mandel... Around, like, 2015, I think. Yeah, and when he came in, you know, this system had been established of rehearsal, which, by the way, we still have. But his approach to writing was different. Not better, just different. Mm -hmm. And so he really was very, very, very intent on outline. Deep, deep outline. Intricate outline. And then script. And then rehearse. So it was a different attack at the same creature. So then we would fold into this script and rehearsal process more of the stuff that we did. So it's sort of the same thing. It's just, you know, we're six, seven now years into this. So we know these characters inside out. And we know our writers really super well. And they know us very well. So in terms of people being precious about their written word, or, by the way, the written word they're meant to perform. Mm-hmm. You know, we have actors here who it's a very sharing kind of group. So that if this joke isn't quite, doesn't land well with X character, it's really quite frequently that somebody say, you know, give this to Matt. This yeah. is better coming out of his mouth. And it makes more sense. And there's never an, honestly, there's just not an ego thing about it because we are really trying to hit that bullseye week after week. And it's a tricky one to hit, by the way. You mentioned Dave Mandel coming in in 2015. And I just wonder, it's not often that that shows that are really working switch mid-run. Yeah. And so when, I guess, can you just contextualize what brought about him taking over for Armando? And had Dave been a part of Veep at all before? Did, no. Because that seems to me like that could have gone very wrong. Yeah, it could have absolutely been a disaster. Don't you know it? And don't you know I didn't, I, I was sweating. Were you? Okay. Of course, yeah. Armando left because he really just, you know, he lives in the UK. We shot the show in Baltimore, Maryland, up until that point. British writers, for the most part, they do these short series. Not They're not fam- used to or familiar with doing these right. shows that never seems to fucking end. <laughs> and so... I think he was just exhausted, right. and understandably so. It's a lot of pressure. So he said he really he really did want to leave, and, and I totally respected that. But the thing is, is that I didn't want to leave. Right. So then the task became finding someone to replace him. And I had worked with Dave on Seinfeld, mm-hmm. and then later on Curb. But I didn't know him super duper well, truthfully. Yep. I mean, we were completely friendly, but it wasn't like we were hanging out and checking in with each other all the time. But I knew he was incredibly intelligent and he was a government major at Harvard and he was interested in it. And so we met and we had a very lengthy meeting talking about the show and 
where we thought it should go and blah, blah, blah. And it went very, very well. And I think he, I know, he understood and shared the same desire that I had, which was to protect what we had done moving forward. So we didn't want this show to feel as if a new showrunner had come in. We didn't want it to feel like that to the viewer and certainly not to the, to the people making it. And his approach with outlines and stuff, that, that did not seem like a threat to that? No, I'm not going to say threat, but there was a learning curve for both of us mm-hmm. in the beginning. But it was a pretty quick curve. Yeah. I don't mean to say that I pushed back against outline, and I don't mean he pushed back against improv, but that we had to sort of find the right rhythm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would imagine that the person you probably work the most closely with in the cast is Tony Hale. Yeah. You guys are pretty much attached to the hip. Yeah, we have a lot of scenes together. Matt, too, by the way. Oh, sure. But Armando, when he was still there, called your dynamic with Tony, quote, a strange, demented double act, close quote. And the New York Times said that part of what makes it so funny is the physical contrast, quote, the small woman, foul mouth and swaggering, shadowed everywhere by a meek, doting, very tall man, close quote. (laughs) But there's a lot more going on there. And I just hope you can talk about how you two operate together on screen and off because it is, I think, a a key part of of the humor of the show. Well, I mean, he's a very dear friend of mine and I rely on him a lot. And we have a, he's like a dance partner. So I think he knows where I'm going to go and I know where he's going to go, sort of. Do you know what I mean? Well, even that one scene where I think they were saying you going to drop your bag or something and not even looking to see if he was there. And he literally, this was not coordinated, ran in and dove in and caught your... Yeah, well, that was actually born out of rehearsal, but yes. Okay, so... So, But, I mean, there is this sense, and we have a lot of fun playing with this idea of this woman, me, being simply taking him utterly for granted, assuming he's there. (laughs) And if he's not, he has totally fucked up. (laughs) And he knows that that I know that he will be there. Right. So it's a highly dysfunctional relationship. <laughs> she would say that she does not depend on him. She would deny his his value. Right. And he would uh, welcome her denial. Her abuse, yes. And he likes the abuse. I'm not going right. to say he likes it, but he understands it and right. he assumes it's there and he thinks that's her prerogative, <laughs> which of course it is. Along with changing showrunners, it seems like another kind of risky thing you guys did. And I think this might have been... I don't remember if it was Armando era or David era, but when you allowed your main character to achieve her greatest ambition and become president, after you did that, was any part of you guys saying, oh, shit, where do we go from here? Yes and no. I mean, this was Armando's idea. Okay. And I thought, well, yeah, I I like the idea of sort of blowing up the concept for the show because it might open up other worlds for us. Mm And I also knew in my heart of hearts it couldn't go well. So I like that very, very, very much. Yeah. And obviously, as you say, it didn't it didn't last for very long. But right. How far into season six, the one that I guess is the most recent that people have seen, how far into the making of that were you when November 8th, 2016 came along and surprised most of us? Yes. We were shooting the third episode of the show – which was quite astoundingly and ironically when Selena Meyer goes to the country of Georgia, not the state, but the country, mm-hmm. to monitor their first free and open election. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. So yeah. that's what we were doing and Where dealing we? with oligarchs yes. and 
Russian leaders, determining which one was worse than the other was almost impossible. Where were you on the night of November 8th, and how did you process all this on just a personal level, but also what the implications might be for, for your show as well? Well, I was, like I say, we were shooting that particular episode, and, and in fact, on that very day, I had a line to deliver, which was, Jesus Christ, democracy, what a horror show, or what a fucking horror show, I can't remember which. And I've never said anything more honestly in my life. Mm. You know, it was weird because we were shooting this one scene and it looked like Hillary's was ahead and, you know, we've done a bunch of takes and we've come at it a couple of different setups and then I go and I turn to one of my producers, Morgan, and I say, hey, how are we doing? And he shakes his head no. And I go, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) It, It was just two hours ago we were... So it's certainly a surreal day, given the fact what we were doing. And I will admit to you that after this election came down, I did sort of question, what are we doing and how can we be funny anymore? So it did sort of, I did have sort of a real crisis of confidence about stuff. The good news for us is that in our show, anyway, we've never identified party. I mean, you it's very difficult to detect, to, other than saying the other side right. or the other party. Right. So I think to that extent, even though I myself am a very liberal-leaning Democrat, to that extent, we've invited people to this show, and I think that's been hugely useful on many levels. It's certainly given us access to both sides of the aisle in a way I think we wouldn't have had otherwise. And you've taken advantage of that. We should know. I mean, this. I think a lot of this was maybe pre-going on, going out to the world for the first time with season one, but who are some of the people you've consulted about the show? Oh, well, my goodness. I mean, specifically, let me think. A few real veeps, right? A few real veeps. Joe Biden and Al Gore and Senators McCain, Klobuchar, Al Franken, of course, yeah. but he, in my mind, he doesn't count because he's sort of one of <laughs> except he does very much count. I don't mean to undermine yes, Senator yes, Franken. Yes. Mitt Romney, a lot of Republican strategists, a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, lobbyists from both sides of, of every side of every issue. Yeah. I mean, we, we've just sort of been all over the place. And the idea behind that is not so much like, hey, what's the most rewarding part of being a senator or something, but it's more like literally the nitty gritty it's the nitty gritty. It's we're really we're really satirizing the culture of politics. Not it's not a parody of one side or the other, and it's really about behavior. I think a lot of these people have much more in common than perhaps it seems. Yeah, and it's also you know to talk to them and see how they just even how they answer a question. We recently had John Dean come in and speak with us. That was fascinating That's right. and. We have John Favreau this week. And I mean, we're just all over the place with talking to different folks. It's pretty cool. When you have a moment and pause and look around the the real world and see what is going on now, sort of in relation to what you guys are doing on Veep, I wonder if you sometimes have to kind of pinch yourself in in disbelief because you guys, for let's just a couple examples. You guys created this vacuous campaign slogan for Selena, quote, (laughs) continuity with change, close quote. Then the Prime Minister of Australia goes and comes out with the slogan, continuity and change. Yes. Different prepositions. Different prepositions. Then now the whole thing is so surreal that people are putting Veep and credits music onto actual scenes from life. Yes, and it works quite well. It was great. This specifically with the one where Trump goes to an executive order signing and, and leaves without signing the executive to sign, order. And then Pence comes behind him carrying <laughs> yes, the paperwork. Kind of it's incredible. So what, what do you think when you see these things? I think we're doing the right thing. 
because it's highlighting how crazy it is? Or I think we've tapped into something that's very that people are intrigued to laugh about. You know, this behavior, it's just about human behavior, isn't it? I mean, needless to say, there are issues of great import and you could, you know, hang yourself in in horror and disgust over a lot of them. But uh, what I mean to say is that these are just human beings and they may be power mad and, and so on. But at the end of the day, they're just these human beings. And the more that we can depict that, I think the funnier the show is, you know. So how much longer do you imagine the going on and and another you, day or two I think. <laughs> <laughs> and well do you in seriousness though what what would the answer be to that but also do you have any idea do you even have time to think about what comes after Veep? a long nap would be good <laughs> but no i haven't thought about life beyond veep really i haven't actually at this point i mean I, you know sometimes i think i mean it'll be different though i want to try something really different would you Ever and don't you may laugh this out of the room, but would you ever run yourself? No, I wouldn't. I think I could run. I was going to say, and I think I I might even win, but I have no interest in running. I really don't. Even when you see like a Franken or somebody who has done that transition well. Oh, he's done it marvelously well. But first of all, he's much smarter than I am. Number one, (laughs) and he's clearly more patient. And it's incredibly hard work and I, I don't I'm not passionate about it so I can't do it okay well with our last couple of minutes here I wonder if we can just do what we call sort of a rapid fire just the first thing that comes to your mind by the way you're an incredible interviewer oh my god you are thank you're really you. good at this thank you That's yeah so and nice I, I've of you. really I've been interviewed by a lot of people but you're very uh, that's so nice of you it's thank a nice you. conversation to thank have. you very much what TV shows other than yours make you laugh John Oliver yeah Truthfully, I don't watch a lot of comedies. I watch more dramas. I think that's probably because I'm not in that business. So it's like watching work up there if I'm watching a lot of comedy, if that makes any sense. You you do anticipate, though, weirdly, that where I'm going here, because you it's not like you were a originally a stand-up or somebody. You happen to become a known for comedy because that's what you've done. Yes. That's what you've been asked to do since yes. Northwestern. But at Northwestern, from what I understand, yes. you did drama. I did. So would you ever do drama again? Yes, I would. I would I would actually I mean, love to do enough that. Said was great. Enough Said was, was sort of uh, dipping my toe in that yeah. water, and I loved it. It's a different muscle group, but it's kind of at all, it's the same muscle group in a lot of ways. And I, I would love to. And there we have our share of dramatic moments on Veep, but yeah. nothing that would catapult us into the drama category. <laughs> but I would really very much like to try drama. As another film like Enough Set or as a drama series? I don't know. Why? Do you have something? I would. Li- I, wanna ju- I just want to see you in drama <laughs> series. That'd be cool. Okay. So based on your vast experiences, comedic ability, something that can be learned, or is it something that you either have or don't? I think you're always learning, but I think you either have it or you don't. Okay. I, I assume that, and I'm glad you're honest enough to say that. because yeah. I mean, just yeah. from a pure sense of humor. I think it's sort of like, and this will sound highfalutin, but I do think it's kind of like having an ear for music, being able to hear humor. Is there any rhyme or reason for why you, a long-married woman, mm-hmm. have, so excelled, married. have so excelled at playing single women? Almost all of these women are either never married or divorced. I have no idea. Virtually all of them, right? These are the jobs I got. Yeah. What? I mean, it's just, isn't that kind of strange when there's that? I mean, one or two, maybe it's just a coincidence. I mean, it's all coincidence. But like one or two, I wouldn't maybe, remark on maybe, it. Maybe because these these gigs with these parts, 
they were written that way because it keeps a lot of doors open. I mean, you can have a revolving door of boyfriends right, and right. guys coming through. And I'm glad about that because, I mean, it's been fun with Selena to have her sleeping with these different guys. <laughs> Some of them are crazier than others. And, I, I, you know, it's good for storytelling. You've gone back only briefly in, in a way to a couple major things in your past. You had the 2006 hosting of SNL. You were the first female cast member ever to go back and host and then that? which is pretty cool no, and but then, i mean can you imagine that that's the first time I that mean, happened that's nuts. i know i think there's been more recently but more recently with, but yeah. when we realized that at the time we were like what the i fuck? know i know yeah it's really bizarre yeah and then 2009 with curb you guys got back together seinfeld guys what was that like going kind of stepping back into those environments, literally with the sets, I think, of Seinfeld, even with Curb, or replica, pretty accurate replicas, if I recall. Yeah. How would you characterize what those moments were like? Well, actually, there's a similar thing going on with both, although they were, in many ways, quite different. But in both cases, I was going back to a place with more knowledge and experience. Yeah. So yeah. it had that sort of weird fantasy element of, if I could go back and just... It's not like I had bitterness or revenge. It sounds like I do. But what I mean is it was just interesting to go back as a somebody who has now lived longer and I now know more. And I think to a certain extent that was a great tool because yeah. when I went back to SNL, I knew the routine. I knew what I had to do in order to make the week work for myself. I knew the monologue was everything. After that, all bets are off. Right. It wasn't new turf for me and I had that experience. And then coming back to Seinfeld, it was fascinating because at that point, I went back, I'd been producing my own show. So I just had a, I don't know, I wasn't, it was interesting. I just wasn't, even though I was an actor for hire, I felt a little more confident going in to it. Was that enough for you, though, that one reunion? It sounds like, you know, every day, I'm sure you get people saying, when are you guys getting back together or whatever. But it seems like the conclusion of most of you guys seems to be that's that's enough. Well, I mean, I think we did it the right way. It was sort of the anti-reunion reunion, and and it was kind of a much in the way that Seinfeld itself was very different for its time. The reunion was very different for any kind of reunion you would ever experience. So it was very much outside the box. And I guess I don't discount another outside the box idea, but, you know, I don't know what that would be. Right, and you guys aren't actively trying to come up with one. So no, no, no. So finally, last year you won your sixth Best Actress in a Comedy Series Emmy, which was a record, and fifth in a row, which was a record. This year you are nominated for the sixth season. And if you win, you would tie Cloris Leachman's record for the most acting wins of anyone ever. When you hear that read back to you, I mean, I'm, I know it's not the first person to point this out, but like, can you process that? What does that mean to you? I actually think I can process that, to tell you the truth. I mean, I don't know how to process that. It's sort of a, I don't know. Because there's, I mean, we're talking about Lucille Ball, Mary Tyler Moore, every great comedy actress you can ever think of, you have in that regard surpassed. Well, so that's wonderful and great. And, you know, if I win again, that's awesome. But if I don't win again, it's also still very awesome. And all of those women that you mentioned are extraordinary actresses with or without their trophies. True. So... As much as I love all of these accolades, what I'm really daunted by is getting into season seven that we're trying to write right now. And that is really where the pressure is. I, I, and again, I don't mean to sound 
it sounds very earnest and everything, but I'm not kidding you. I mean, it would be wonderful to win, but at the end of the day, the Emmys are, what, September something? 17th. 17th. So yeah. September 18th, right. I'm going back to my writer's room, <laughs> and we're working on the arc of season seven. That's the pressure cooker. That's, yeah. Because I really want the show to be as good as season six, mm-hmm. and maybe even better, and that's the that's the mountain to climb. If we get the trophy, that would be fucking awesome, <laughs> and I would gladly take it. But it, but anyway, I'm not kidding. It's a it's a very sort of high bar that's been set, and we've got to keep hitting it. And it, you know, and and that's where the work is about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this, and Thanks. congratulations. Really enjoyed. Thank it. you. It was really nice to talk to you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.